Chapter 5 of The Pirate Island, A Story of the South Pacific. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Pirate Island, A Story of the South Pacific by Harry Collinwood. Chapter 5, Homeward Bound. At the date of this story, the discharging of a cargo was a much more leisurely operation than it is at the present day and Bob therefore had several opportunities of taking a run ashore and looking round the town and suburbs of Sydney. The passengers, such of them, that is, as were residents in or near Sydney, had one and all given Bob most pressing invitations to visit them whenever he could obtain leave, and on the day but one following the arrival of the ship, a very prettily worded and pressing little note had come to him from Blanche Lasselle to say that the friends with whom she and Violet were staying at Cookstown would be delighted to make his acquaintance, so that Bob was never at a loss for a place whither to direct his steps whenever he could get ashore. He consequently managed to see a good deal of the place, and thoroughly enjoyed the seven weeks during which the Galatea lay in Sydney Harbour. The outward cargo discharged, the homeward freight of wool began to come down, and the stevedores were kept busy all day long, screwing it into as small a compass as possible in the hold. Meanwhile, Captain Staunton was in great tribulation. The gold fever was then at its height in Australia. The precious metal had been discovered some years before, but about a month previous to the arrival of the Galatea in Sydney, news had come down the country of the discovery of a new auriferous region, the richness and extent of which was said to be something past belief. The result of this rumor was that every idle loafer who arrived in an Australian port made it his first business to desert from his ship and start hot foot for the gold fields. If the matter had ended here, the shipmasters would have had cause to congratulate themselves, rather than the reverse. But unfortunately for them it was not so. The gold fever had stricken everybody, merchants even, mechanics, clerks, all in fact but the few cool hands who realized that by remaining in the half-deserted towns they were sure of making that fortune the winning of which at the diggings was problematical and one consequence of this was that when seamen deserted a ship, no one could be found to take their places, and Captain Staunton could stand on his own poop and count at least fifty vessels whose cargoes were on board, hatches battened down and everything ready for sea, but there they lay, unable to sail for want of a crew to man them. Now the Galatea was not in quite so bad a plight as this, for when the last bale of wool had been screwed in and the hatches put on, there still remained in her forecastle eight good men who were true, six belonging to the port watch, and two to the starboard, who had resisted all the alluring dreams of fortunes to be made in a day at the diggings. The other eight had deserted in a body one Sunday, very cleverly eluding the police, whose chief duty it then was to prevent such occurrences. The second mate and the cook were also missing, hence Captain Staunton's anxiety. On the one hand, he was averse to the extreme step of taking his ship to sea half-manned, and on the other, he was haunted by the constant dread of losing still more of his men if he remained in port until he had made up his complement. At length, however, to his infinite relief, he chanced upon half a dozen men who, in consideration of the payment of fabulous wages, undertook to ship for the homeward passage. They were as lawless and ruffianly looking a set of fellows as one need ever care to encounter, but as Mr. Bowles observed, they could at least pull and haul, and once at sea and away from the demoralizing influence of the grog-shops, who knew but they might settle down into steady, serviceable hands? At all events, they would not want for a good example on the part of their shipmates, the remnant of the original crew, 
for these were without exception thoroughly steady, reliable men, although one of them was Boyd, the man who had been shot by Mr. Carter for refusal to obey orders. These men secured, Captain Staunton resolved to avoid all further risk by sailing at once. It was true that the ship would be still rather short-handed, which was all the more to be regretted inasmuch as she was in light trim and a trifle crank, but he reflected that he might lie in port for the next six months without securing another man, and it therefore seemed to him best, under the circumstances, to make shift with what he had, and get away to sea forthwith. Hasty summonses were accordingly dispatched to the few passengers who had taken berths, and these all coming on board next day, the anchor was hove up, and evening saw the Galatea standing off the land and heading to the eastward, with every sail set and dragging at her like a cart-horse. The passengers were this time only six in number, namely Blanche and Violet, Messrs. Dale, Fortescue, and Brooke, who had lost the contract, which they went out in the hope of securing, entirely through the obstinacy of the head of the firm, and a Mr. Evelyn, formerly a captain in the Royal Engineers, who had thrown up his commission to go gold-digging, and who, thanks to his technical training, supplemented by arduous special study of geology, had been successful to an extraordinary degree, and was now returning home master of a handsome fortune. Launcelot, or Lance Evelyn, was a tall, handsome man of about thirty-five, with the physique of a Hercules, the result of some six months' toil and exposure at the diggings, deeply bronzed, clear-cut features, half-concealed by a heavy mustache and beard of a golden chestnut hue, clear gray eyes and wavy hair a shade darker than the beard. He proved an immense acquisition to the ladies, who would otherwise have been almost entirely dependent on Rex Fortescue for amusement, Mr. Dale being altogether too savage at his recent failure to make an agreeable associate, which indeed he never was, even at the best of times, while Brooke, willing though he was to do his best, was too pugnacious, ill-bred, and illiterate to be more than just barely tolerated. Rex Fortescue and Violet, it was perfectly clear, were daily sinking deeper into that condition wherein people are conscious of the existence of two individuals only, their two selves, in the whole world, so that poor little Blanche would soon have found herself quite out in the cold had not Mr. Evelyn taken compassion upon her and devoted himself to her amusement. He knew London well, and on comparing notes, it soon transpired that he knew several people with whom Blanche was also acquainted. So they got on capitally together, especially as Lance possessed, in an eminent degree, the art of making his conversation interesting. Later on, too, when he had thawed a little, he would relate story after story of his adventures at the goldfields, some of which convulsed his companion with laughter, while others made her shudder and nestle unconsciously a little closer to the narrator. But notwithstanding this, Blanche still found time to chat occasionally with Bob. The lad was very fond of steering. Indeed, he had won the reputation of being the finest helmsman in the ship, and he was always ready to take a trick at the wheel during either of the dog-watches, and so give the rightful helmsman a chance to stay forward and amuse himself with his shipmates. And when this was the case, Blanche generally used to seat herself in a deck-chair near him and shatter away upon any topic which came uppermost. She had been thus amusing herself one evening when, as eight bells struck and Bob walked forward on being relieved from the wheel, Lance Evelyn, who had been smoking his cigar on the break of the poop and watching from a distance the carryings-on of the men upon the forecastle, sauntered to her side in open conversation with the remark, "'How singularly exact a repetition of the same features you will observe in some families. Doubtless you have often noticed it, Miss Lassell. 
Now, there is that fine young fellow Ledgerton. Anyone would recognize him as a connection of yours, and I have often been on the point of asking you in what manner you are related to each other. Am I unpardonably inquisitive? By no means, Mr. Evelyn. It is a question easily answered. I am not aware that we are related in the most remote degree. You are not? he exclaimed in a tone of greatest surprise. I am sure I most earnestly beg your pardon. How very stupid of me to make such a mistake. But the resemblance between you two is so very striking that, although no one has ever said a word to lead me to such a conclusion, I have never doubted from the moment I came on board that you must be closely related. I am sure I am quite at a loss for words wherewith to express my apologies. No apology is necessary, I assure you, Mr. Evelyn, returned Blanche. On the contrary, I feel rather flattered by your supposition, for I greatly admire Robert's many sterling qualities, and what a bold, brave fellow he is, too, notwithstanding his quiet, unassuming manner. If you feel any curiosity as to his history, Captain Staunton will be only too happy to furnish you with full particulars. He can enlighten you far better than I can, and the story is worth listening to. The manner of their first acquaintance especially is a romance in itself. Lance's curiosity was aroused, but instead of referring to the skipper, he preferred to hear the story from Blanche's own pretty lips, and sinking down into a deck-chair beside her, he listened with interest to all that the fair girl could tell him respecting Bob. "'Poor fellow!' he remarked when Blanche had finished her story. "'And he has never been able to find a clue to his parentage? It is very singular.' There surely must be relatives of his still in existence somewhere. Did the fisherman who saved his life never make in any inquiries? No, it appears not, answered Blanche. According to Robert's own account, though he always speaks with the greatest respect and affection of the old man who adopted him, the people among whom he was thrown are very simple and ignorant of everything outside the pale of their own calling. And it would seem that they really did not know how to set about instituting an inquiry. "'Well, what you have told me has interested me so much, and the lad himself has made such a favorable impression upon me, that I believe I shall really feel more than half inclined to undertake the somewhat quixotic task of seeking his relatives myself when we reach England. Who knows but that it might be my good fortune to gladden the heart of a father or mother whose life has been embittered for years by the loss of perhaps an only son?' half laughingly remarked Lance. "'Ah, do not jest upon such a subject,' exclaimed Blanche. You evidently have not the least idea what a complete blight such a loss may cast upon a parent's life. I have. There is my poor uncle, Sir Richard, who has never held up his head since he lost his wife and child at sea. My mother has told me that before his terrible bereavement there was not a more genial, light-hearted, happy man living than Uncle Dick. But he has never been known to smile since the dreadful news first reached him, and though he has always struggled bravely against his great sorrow— I feel sure he looks forward eagerly to the time when he shall be called away to rejoin his wife and his baby boy. How very sad, remarked Lance in sympathetic tones. I am slightly acquainted with Sir Richard Lascelles, that is to say, I have met him once or twice, and I have often wondered what great trouble it could be that seemed to be pressing so heavily upon him. If it would not distress you too much, I should like to hear how he met with his terrible loss. I have no objection to tell you, answered Blanche. It occurred very shortly after I was born. My uncle was then a younger son, with very little expectation of ever succeeding to the baronetcy, for there were two brothers older than himself, and he had a captain's commission in the army. He had married a lady of whom, because she happened to have no money, his father strongly disapproved, 
and a serious quarrel between father and son was the consequence. Shortly after his marriage, my uncle's regiment was ordered off to North America, and Uncle Dick naturally took his wife with him. The regiment was moved about from place to place, and finally when my uncle had been married about three years, was broken up into detachments, that which he commanded being sent, in consequence of some trouble with the Indians, to an important military outpost at a considerable distance up the Ottawa River. Of course it was quite impossible for my aunt to accompany her husband into the wilds, especially as she was then the mother of a son some eighteen months old, and the question which arose was, what was she to do? It was at first proposed that she should establish herself in Montreal until the return of the expedition, but a letter reaching her just at that time, stating that her mother's health was failing, it was hastily decided that my aunt should return to England, taking of course her little son with her. Everything had to be done in a great hurry, and my uncle had barely time to pack his wife's boxes and see her safely en route for Montreal before he set out with his detachment for the post to which he had been ordered. My aunt arrived safely at Montreal, but failing to find there a ship ready to sail for England, went on to Quebec, which she reached just in time to embark for London. She had written to my uncle from Montreal, and she wrote again from Quebec, the letter reaching her husband's hands as he was on the point of marching out of the fort on a night expedition against a band of hostile Indians who had been discovered in the neighborhood. An engagement took place in which my uncle was desperately wounded and narrowly escaped falling into the hands of the Indians. His men succeeded, however, in saving him and making good their own retreat into the fort, where poor Uncle Dick lay hovering for weeks between life and death. After a long and weary struggle, his splendid constitution triumphed, and with the return of consciousness came anxious thoughts respecting his wife and child. He remembered the letter which had been handed to him as he marched out upon that ill-starred expedition, the letter which he had never had an opportunity to read, and he made eager inquiries respecting it. It was found in an inner breast pocket of his uniform coat, but it had been so thoroughly saturated with his own blood, poor fellow, that it was practically undecipherable. By careful soaking and washing, he at last succeeded in ascertaining that my aunt and her baby had actually sailed from Quebec, but on what date or in what ship it was quite impossible to learn, and that was the last news he ever heard of them. How very dreadful, murmured Lance. Of course he made every possible inquiry respecting their fate. Not immediately, answered Blanche. He waited patiently for news of my aunt's arrival in England, but as mail after mail came without bringing him any intelligence, he grew uneasy and finally wrote to his mother-in-law asking an explanation for the unaccountable silence. This letter remained unanswered, but just when his uneasiness had increased to such a pitch that he had determined to apply for leave of absence in order to proceed to England, it was returned to him through the dead letter office. This decided him at once. He applied for leave, and it was refused. Then he threw up his commission, and at once proceeded to England, the fearful conviction growing upon him that something dreadful had happened. He stopped at Quebec for a fortnight on his way home, making inquiry at all the shipowners and brokers' offices in the place, endeavoring to learn the name of the ship in which his wife had been a passenger, but, strange to say, he could gain no trace of them. Whether it was that the people of whom he inquired were careless and indifferent, or whether it was that passenger lists were not at that time regularly kept as they are now, it is of course impossible to say but it is a fact that he was compelled to leave America without the smallest scrap of information respecting his dear ones beyond that contained in the bloodstained letter. On his arrival in England, he proceeded direct to his mother-in-law's former residence to find it, as he feared, in the possession of strangers. 
He then, with considerable difficulty, hunted up the lawyer who had managed Mrs. Percival's, his mother-in-law's, money matters, and learned from him that the old lady had died some seven months before. And in reply to his further inquiries, he was informed that his wife and child had never reached Mrs. Percival's home. The old lady had certainly expected them, the lawyer said, but she had never received more than one letter which my uncle had hurriedly written, mentioning the fact of their departure for England. Poor Uncle Dick now found himself completely at a loss, so, as the best plan he could think of, he put the affair into his lawyer's hands, handing him also the blood-stained letter. This letter was soon afterwards entrusted to a chemist, who, in attempting to cleanse it, destroyed it altogether, and thus passed away the only clue which my uncle possessed. It is now rather more than sixteen years since my aunt sailed from Quebec, and poor Uncle Dick has never succeeded in gaining a trace of her fate to this day. "'Poor fellow!' ejaculated Lance, in an absent sort of way. "'I'm sure I sincerely pity and sympathize with him. "'What, going below already? "'Then allow me to conduct you as far as the companion.' Blanche bade Lance good night at the head of the saloon staircase. He raised his smoking cap, and then returning, sauntered up and down the poop for over an hour, with his hands behind him and his eyes fixed on the deck, apparently in a brown study. A few days after the narration of Blanche's story, Lance Evelyn, noticing Bob at the wheel, strolled up to him and asked him for his history. Miss Lascelles gave me the outlines of it a night or two ago, and it struck me as so peculiar and interesting that I should like to hear full particulars, he explained, puffing lazily at his cigar meanwhile. Where would you like me to begin, Mr. Evelyn? asked Bob. At the beginning, of course, my dear fellow, laughingly answered Lance. I want to know everything. Do you remember being found on board the wreck? Sometimes I think I do, and at other times I think it must be only the recollection of a dream which has produced a more than usually strong impression upon me, answered Bob. Now and then, perhaps not more than a half dozen times altogether, when I have been lying half asleep and half awake, a confused and indistinct idea presents itself of a ship's cabin seen through a half-open stateroom door, with a lamp swinging violently to and fro, of a woman's face, beautiful as, oh, I cannot describe it, something like Miss Dudley's, only still more beautiful, if you can imagine such a thing. Then the dream, or whatever it is, gets still more confused. I seem to be in cold and wet and darkness, and I fancy I hear a sound like men shouting, mingled with the roar of the wind and the rush of the sea. Then, then, I seem to have been kissed. Yes, and the beautiful face seems to be bending over me again. But I am in the light and the warmth once more. And then it all passes away. And if I try to carry my thoughts back to the first circumstance, which I can distinctly remember, I see myself again with other boys, paddling about barefoot on the shore at Brightlingsea. Ah, ejaculated Lance contemplatively. I have no doubt but that, if the truth could be arrived at, which of course it never can be in this world, this dream, or whatever you like to call it, is the faint recollection which still remains impressed on your memory of some of the incidents connected with the wreck of your ship. What was her name, by the by? The Lightning of London. Hmm, that's not a very difficult name to remember at all events. And the beautiful face of which you spoke, is your impression of it clear enough to enable you to describe it? Or, supposing it possible for you to see a picture of the original, do you think you would recognize it? Do you mind my asking these questions? No, that's all right. But if it is in the least painful to you, I will not put them. You see, Ledgerton, I have very little doubt that face was the face of your mother. And I confess I feel a trifle curious to know how far back a man can carry his remembrance of his mother. 
I cannot remember anything about mine previous to my fourth birthday. Well, answered Bob, I can scarcely remember the face clearly enough to describe it. All I can say about it is that it was very beautiful, with tender loving eyes and dark hair, which I am almost sure must have been worn in curls, but I think that if I ever saw a really good picture of it, I should recognize it directly. You would, eh? said Lance. Very well. Now go ahead, if you are not tired of talking, and tell me about the old fellow who found you, and the sort of life you led as a fisherman, and so on. It is all very interesting, I assure you, quite as much so as any of the novels in the saloon bookcase. Bob accordingly went ahead, his companion occasionally interrupting him with a question, and when the story was finished, Lance rose and stretched himself, saying as he turned to walk away, Thank you very much. Your story is so interesting that I think I shall make a few notes of it for the benefit of a literary friend of mine, so if you meet with it in print some day, you must not be very much surprised. And as Bob saw him shortly afterwards, notebook in hand, and as this story actually is in print, it is to be presumed that Mr. Lance Evelyn really carried out his expressed intention. On the day following this conversation, the wind, which had been blowing steadily from the westward for some time, suddenly dropped, and by four bells in the afternoon watch it had fallen to a dead calm, the ship rolling like a log on the heavy swell. Not the faintest trace of cloud could be discerned in the stupendous vault which sprang in delicate carnation and primrose tints from the encircling horizon, passing through a multitude of subtle gradations of color until it became at the zenith a broad expanse of clearest, purest, deepest blue. The atmosphere was transparent to an almost extraordinary degree, the slow-moving masses of swell rising sharply outlined to the very verge of the horizon, while the mastheads of a far distant ship stood out clear and well-defined, like two minute and delicately drawn thin lines on the pale primrose background of the sky. Suddenly, however, a curious phenomenon occurred. A subtle but distinct and instantaneous change of color took place, which made it seem as though the spectators were regarding the scene through tinted glass. All the brilliance and purity and beauty of the various hues had died out. The dazzling ultramarine of the zenith became indigo. The clear transparent hues of the horizon thickened and deepened to a leaden gray. The sun gleamed aloft pallid and rayless, like a ghost of its former self. And the ocean, black and turbid, heaved restlessly, writhing as if in torture. An intense and unnatural silence, too, seemed suddenly to have fallen upon nature, enwrapping the scene as with a mantle, a silence in which the flap of the canvas, the pattering of the reef points, the cheap of blocks, and the occasional clank of the rudder chains fell upon the ear with a sharpness which was positively painful. The occupants of the Galatea's deck glanced from one to another, dismayed. Violet Dudley's startled whisper to Rex Fortescue of, what dreadful thing is about to happen, being but the utterance of the thought which flashed through every brain. Captain Staunton, turning to Mr. Bowles, who was standing beside him, in low tones requested that trusty officer to keep a lookout for a minute or two, and then hurried down to the saloon to consult his barometer. He returned to the deck in less than a minute, his face wearing a look of anxiety and concern, which was very rarely to be seen there. The glass has fallen a full inch within the last half hour, he muttered, as he rejoined the mate. Then, in a louder tone of voice, he added, Call all hands, Mr. Bowles, if you please, and shorten sail at once. Stow everything except the lower four and main topsails, and the four topmast staysail. I think we are going to have a change of weather. 
the seamen were as much startled as the occupants of the poop by the preternatural change in the aspect of the sky, and they sprang to their posts with all the alacrity of men who anticipate a deadly struggle and believe they have none too much time for preparation. The work of shortening sail proceeded rapidly, but methodically, and in an orderly manner. Captain Staunton had never before in all his experience witnessed anything quite like what was now passing around him, and was oppressed by an undefined foreboding of some terrible catastrophe. But he was too brave a man and too thorough a seaman to allow aught of this to appear in either countenance, voice, or manner. Nor would he allow the work to be hurried through with inconsiderate haste. He saw that the men were startled, and it rested with him to steady them, restore their confidence, and so prepare them for the coming struggle, whatever its nature might be. Meanwhile, the atmospheric phenomena were momentarily assuming a more and more portentous aspect. The sky deepened in tint from indigo to a purple black. The sun lost its pallid sickly gleam, and hung in the sable heavens a lurid blood-red ball until it became obscured by heavy masses of dusky vapor which had gathered imperceptibly in the firmament, and now seemed to be settling slowly down upon the ship's mastheads, rolling and writhing like huge tortured serpents meanwhile. The silence, broken though it was by the sounds of preparation on board, grew even more oppressively intense and death-like than before. The darkness now came to add new terrors to the scene, not the wholesome solemn darkness of nightfall, but a weird, unearthly gloom which was neither night nor day, a gloom which descended and encompassed them stealthily and menacingly, contracting the horizon until nothing could be seen further than half a mile from the ship, and which still seemed to be saturated with a pale, spectral, shimmering light, in the which men looked in each other's eyes like reanimated corpses. The ocean presented an aspect no less appalling, at one moment black as the waters of the Styx, and indistinguishable beyond the distance of a cable's length, and anon gleaming into view to the very verge of the horizon, a palpitating sheet of greenish, ghastly, phosphorescent light. The canvas was stowed down to the lower fore and main topsail and the fore-topmast staysail, and the men were about to hurry down from aloft when Captain Staunton stopped them. "'Clue up and stow the lower topsails as well,' he shouted, adding in an undertone to Mr. Bowles. "'I don't know what to expect, but it threatens to be something terrible, and the less canvas we show to it the better. The staysail will be quite as much as we shall want, I expect.' The topsails were stowed, and the men came down on deck again, evidently glad to find themselves there once more, and huddling together on the forecastle like frightened sheep. The passengers were clustered together on the poop, standing in a group, somewhat apart from the skipper and the mate, awaiting pale and silent the denouement. Bob, who had been aloft helping to stow the mizzen canvas, stepped up to them as he swung himself out of the rigging, and, addressing himself more particularly to Violet and Blanche, recommended them to go below at once. These warnings, said he, are not for nothing. The precautions which Captain Staunton has taken show clearly enough that he expects something quite out of the common, and the change is likely enough to come upon us suddenly, bringing perhaps some of our top hamper about our ears. So, if you ladies will be advised, I would recommend you to go below, where you will certainly be in much less danger. Blanche and Violet looked at each other inquiringly. I shall remain here, said Violet, unconsciously tightening her hold upon Rex Fortescue's arm as she spoke. Whatever happens, I would very much rather be here, where I can see the full extent of the danger, than pent up in a cabin picturing to myself I know not what horrors. Blanche expressed the same determination, but Mr. Dale hurried at once to the companion, 
loudly lamenting that he had ever entrusted his precious self to the beastly treacherous sea. His remarks attracted Captain Staunton's attentions to the party, and he at once stepped hurriedly toward them, exclaiming, "'Good heavens, ladies and gentlemen, let me beg you to go below at once. I had no idea you were here. The saloon is the safest place for you all at a time like this. You will be out of harm's way there, while here—' "'Look out!' shouted Mr. Bowles. "'Here it comes with a vengeance. Take care of yourselves, everybody!' The gloom had visibly deepened, until it became difficult for those grouped together on the poop to distinguish each other's features, and a low, deep, humming sound was now audible, which increased in volume with startling rapidity. "'Go below, all of you, I beg,' repeated Captain Staunton in anxious tones, "'and be as quick as you can about it, please. What is the matter, Mr. Dale?' as that individual stood a few steps down the staircase, grasping the handrail on each side, neither descending himself nor allowing anyone else to do so. "'My book!' exclaimed Dale. "'I left a book on one of the hen-coops, and—' His further remarks were drowned in the deafening din of the tempest, which at this moment swooped down upon the ship with indescribable fury, striking her full upon her starboard broadside, and hurling her over in an instant on her beam-ends. The group gathered about the companionway made an instinctive effort to save themselves. Rex Fortescue, flinging his arm about Violet Dudley's waist, and dragging her with him to the mizzenmast, where he hung on desperately to a belaying pin. Brooke nimbly scrambled upon the upturned weather side of the companion. Evelyn, exasperated by Mr. Dale's ill-timed anxiety about his book, had stepped inside the companionway and down a stair or two to summarily remove the obstructor, and the two were flung together to the bottom of the staircase. Blanche, left thus without a protector, clung convulsively for a moment to one of the open doors of the companion, but her strength failing her, she let go and fell backwards with a shriek into the water, which foamed hungrily up over the lee rail. Bob, who had made a spring for the weather mizzen rigging, was just passing a turn or two of rope round his body when, happening to turn his head, he saw Blanche fall. To cast himself adrift and spring headlong after her was the work of an instant, and he succeeded in grasping her dress just in the nick of time, for in another instant the ship would have driven over her and Blanche's fate would have been sealed. As it was, they both had a very narrow escape, for Bob in his haste had omitted to take a rope's end with him, and had consequently no means of returning inboard, or rather, for the lee side of the deck was buried in the water, of regaining a place of safety. In this emergency, Brooke, who was a witness of the scene, acted in a very prompt and creditable manner. The rope, by which Bob had been in the act of securing himself, streamed out in the wind in such a way as to come within Brooke's reach, and by its aid he at once drew himself up to windward, and, climbing out on the weather side of the ship, dexterously dropped from thence a coiled-up rope's end, which he had taken off a belaying pin directly down upon Bob's head. Bob at once grasped the rope with his disengaged hand, and with a rapid twist threw two or three turns round his arm, whereupon Brooke, exerting all his strength, drew his prizes steadily up the steeply inclined deck, until they were able to scramble into the place he had vacated upon the companion. End of chapter 5